spend more time where rules are not allowed. I wanna find myself lost in the crowd. I wanna travel past the boundaries so far they disappear. Out here, just the two of us, I make friends with my fear. Hey everyone, I'm Jenna Renee Shellman. Welcome to Leading With Your Gut. Leading With Your Gut is a podcast series featuring daring individuals from around the world who share stories and topics about embracing their fears and having the courage to make intuitive gut decisions. I want to note that I think it is wise to use research data, your network, or past experiences to help drive major decisions. However, it is important to recognize when analysis paralysis takes over and disables your ability to have the confidence to make authentic decisions. By maintaining a strong connection with your intuition, you can only gain an advantage yourself. The purpose of this podcast is to empower and inspire you to follow your intuition, trust in yourself, and have the strength to own your story. You will hear from courageous people who defy societal expectations, combat their inner negative thoughts, and use their gut to help guide them through life. The guests on this podcast are not perfect, and neither am I. Leading with your gut embraces authenticity, vulnerability, and the audacity to be truly seen. This podcast is my passion project, and by having the opportunity to create this platform, it has led me on a journey to a meaningful career in professional coaching. Leading with your gut, coaching and consulting is smart coaching for go-getters who want to boost their confidence, pivot from burnout, and live a purpose-driven life, all while honing in to their intuition. After the show, email leadingwithyourgut at gmail.com to receive my free 13-minute video guide on how to use the SMART method to create wellness-related goals that will help you stay focused on your well-being, especially during this crazy time. That's leadingwithyourgut at gmail.com. Website coming soon. Stay connected with me on social media. Connect and follow Jenna Renee Shellman and Leading With Your Gut on all major platforms. On Twitter, it's Jenna R. Shellman. If you are an Apple Podcast listener, please rate and write a review of Leading With Your Gut when the episode is over. Please and thank you. Finally, I want to give a special shout out to Shaw Wild, spelled C-H-A space W-I-L-D-E. Shaw is the musician who wrote and produced the intro and outro song, Delivered to Earth on a Rainbow. You can find Shaw Wild's music on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. All right, let's get started. Stay tuned for an interactive and creative lineup of powerful stories on Leading With Your Gut. Dr. Cheryl Ingram's fuck it moment happened after experiencing mistreatment in her workplace for being a black woman. Cheryl quit her nonprofit job and started two successful businesses in less than five years, Diversity and Inclusology. Dr. Ingram is passionate about helping companies build sustainable diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies, creating DEI in the workplace. Cheryl is absolutely tenacious. She is a high performer, a go-getter, and has a lot of grit. 
In this week's episode of Leading With Your Gut, Dr. Ingram shares how her path to being a purpose-driven entrepreneur all started. Cheryl and I discuss our experiences of discrimination, specifically in the workplace. One, experiences of being a woman in the workplace. And two, experiences of being a woman of color in the workplace. We also talk about what many entrepreneurs struggle with, imposter syndrome and fear. Cheryl's biggest piece of advice is to find a way to show up and trust your inner voice. We start out the conversation with Dr. Ingram sharing her first experience of imposter syndrome in college. After the show, please check out Diversity and Inclusology. Links are in the show notes. You can also connect with Cheryl on social media where she uses humor and authenticity to post very engaging content. This is Dr. Cheryl Ingram. What did you major in? I started out in computer engineering. Okay, so that's different from the medical field. (laughs) (laughs) In elementary school, I was good at math and science. I always have been really good with numbers and data. And at the time, I just knew that I liked numbers and data. And then I got into college and I was like, I talked to an advisor and I was like, I want to do computer science. And it was a woman. And she was like, why? So I was telling her all about it. I was like, I was in the Mesa program, all of these things. And so she was like, all right, let's try it. And I remember, Jenna, I failed chemistry. I had never failed a class before. And I was like on honor roll in AP classes in college. Even growing up like poor education. I mean, it's a misconception that education is not valuable to people who live in poverty. Right. And so like at that time, it was really valuable to us because that was kind of my outlet from growing up in a very impoverished neighborhood. Like Omaha, Nebraska, at one time, I think it was 2013, was ranked third in the U.S. for worst place for African-Americans to live because of poverty and unemployment. And so the way for me to get out that I saw was education. And so I remember like when I went to college, I was majoring in computer science and I failed chemistry again and I failed it twice. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, I failed. What am I going to do? And I'm a first generation college student. And so I remember calling my mom and I was telling her, I was like, I failed these classes. I might be on academic probation. Like, I just have never understood that. And she was like, well, go talk to somebody that can help you because I don't have a college degree. I don't really know what to say. And so I went to talk to an advisor, a white male. I'll never forget it. And he was like, well, maybe computer engineering just isn't for you. Like, that was the first thing that he said. I still feel anger behind that because at the time I was like, maybe it's not. You know what I'm saying? Like imposter syndrome had kind of kicked in because I'd never failed like that before and consistently, especially. And so I had done something to my self-esteem. So I was like, all right, well, what's the next best thing? Like I was on scholarship. So I was like, I don't want to lose my scholarship and I don't want to run out of money. I was in the sophomore year. He's like, why don't you try communication studies? And I was like, all right, I'll try communication studies. And so... I went and I tried communication studies. I was great at it because I also love to speak in front of people. So I don't regret the decision. I just regret how the process happened for me to come to that, that outcome. You know, I learned to talk in front of like large crowds, which has served me very well now, but still sometimes miss that exposure to tech, hence why I created a tech company. Mm. Did you change advisors? I did. I did change advisors. I actually ended up going back to the woman who originally put me in computer science. And she actually stuck with me until I got into grad school. I stayed with her until I got high school. And she talked me into minoring in math. Good. I had a similar experience when I was a freshman in college. I had an advisor that was a white male. And there was a class that I wasn't doing well in. It was a science class also. 
And mm-hmm. all I wanted was I just wanted help. And he didn't help me. And the first thing that he said was that I should just switch majors. And this was literally just three weeks. I didn't even have a major yet, but he just said I should get out of the course and switch. And this was like three weeks. And I just remember feeling like he didn't listen to me. I felt like he was judging me for being a woman and being a woman of color. And he didn't even want to give me a shot. And I switched advisors to a woman and she was fantastic the rest of my experience. Yep. Same. I was the same. I felt like as I look back at it now, at the time, I didn't have the words, you know, but I was like, why is there so much doubt? And I knew about racism. Like I grew up, my mother would take us to African-American history, bookstores and things. And my mother was the kind of mother. She grew up very hard. So she was like, well, what do you need to do to be protected and safe and successful? So when I had talked to her about those things, I was like, well, he told me to take another major. And she was like, is it something that you want to do? Like my mother just didn't really know how to help me. So that made me think a lot about people from my situation as well. And, you know, I met these people in black programs and I would talk to them and their experiences were similar to mine. At the time, New Mexico State, they had a Department of Black Programs. And I just remember going in there and sitting down and listening to all these students who had the same experiences I did. And especially people from NSBE, National Society of Black Engineers, are like, just don't give up. That meant a lot to me to have that community and that support, especially because there was so much racism and sexism at the time and even sizeism. What is the demographic at New Mexico State? Oh, at that time, it was 51 percent Hispanic, I think 2 percent African-American, maybe 40 percent white. And then the rest, I don't remember much. Okay, so there was some diversity there. Some. (laughs) (laughs) Racial diversity, at least. Some. Yeah. So that moment with your advisor and the support that you received from your community kind of fueled what was to come for you. Is that what I'm hearing correctly? It was. It did. Like I started doing research on discrimination in academic and social settings for students of color, especially African-Americans, and how that impacted our, I don't even call it a dropout rate sometimes, our pushout rate from institutions, PWIs or TWIs like that. And I just remember learning all of these things and seeing all these different case studies that students who were like me had gone through. Same exact thing, like what you just said, you know, like thousands and thousands of studies that I was reading. And I was like, how the fuck is this still happening? And why haven't we figured out a way to solve it? And so that did that ignited my spark for my dissertation, for my thesis. It was all based on that. So did you major in communications or did you take another degree? I did. I got my undergrad in communications with a minor in math. And then I got two graduate degrees, a master's and a doctorate in education with specialization in diversity and inclusion. Were you ever a teacher? Yes. Yes, I was. I taught graduate school. I've taught in college and I've taught in elementary school. Okay. And did you focus on diversity and inclusion? Or what did you focus on? I did. At the time, in college, they called it multicultural studies, which is the exact same concepts that we teach in DNI, just shifting from academia to, you know, corporate world or for-profit, basically. But yeah, I taught multicultural studies. And when I was in teaching in elementary school, I taught computer science. I taught tech. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. I'm sure that you inspired so many people then that had a similar experience as to you, right? This imposter syndrome and having one person tell them that they couldn't do it because of their background. Yep. Yeah. I remember like it made me so much more aware of how it was happening to other people. I mean, not just, you know, black people, but it like opened my eyes because I remember working in multicultural studies and in multicultural studies center, there's the LGBTQ plus department, Chicano studies, American Indian studies. And I would just sit back and listen to all the experiences we had. And I even remember times where meetings would become like a den of self-interest is what I call it. It's like the lion's den of self-interest where everybody that's in there was struggling so much that we was fighting each other for resources. 
you know? And so I keep that in mind, even when I'm going into companies now and moving forward with DEI, because I'm just like, I've seen this before and I know why it happens. Now let's solve the problem. And for listeners that do not know, what does DEI stand for? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Got it. Okay. So when you were teaching, did you think this is it? I'm going to be a teacher. No. (laughs) (laughs) What were you thinking? I love teaching. Probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Because I was working in a Title I school at the time, which was extremely underfunded. In graduate school, actually, I was like, I found the love of working for adults in the space of DEI. I was like, I'm going to find a way to do this for the rest of my career because I loved it so much. In elementary school, I loved working with children. But being in the school, I was like, I'm big on solutions and systemic discrimination and oppression. And so working in that space, I was like, I'm never going to solve the problems in here by being here. Yeah. I was like, I think it's time for me to to go work more at a systemic level because my passion has always been to dismantle and rebuild systems. So then did you think, okay, I'm going to own my own business one day or did you even have that mindset yet? I didn't have that mindset. I'll tell you my fuck it moment is what I call it. <laughs> Please do. Seattle did it, Jenna. I was like, oh no, I am done. Please tell me. Please <laughs> tell me. When I entrepreneurship came to me because I was so beat up. And when I say beat up, I mean, mentally, I was working at a nonprofit at the time in Seattle. I had moved to Seattle because after my postdoc, I got into a program in Seattle to do work for outdoor leadership and multicultural education or DEI. And I remember I shifted from that position because I was like, this is one of the most racist things I've ever seen. And it was like, I remember sitting in the circle, it was about 40 of us, and I think about six people of color. And they handed us their diversity statement. And I read it and I looked at it and nobody said anything. And I raised my hand. I said, this is the whitest thing I've ever seen. And I was like, this is like the safest diversity statement I've ever read. I was like, y'all don't call out anything. I was like, what are we supposed to do with this? And the lady said, well, we have Robin. She pointed to this other Black woman who was sitting next to her. And she's like, we work on diversity. And I was like, all right, this conversation's not going to go very far. And then I remember I shifted from that position to a nonprofit and it was the same thing again. I was like, I'm being mistreated here, like in a way that is so systemic that I don't even know if these people realize that's happening. Right. And when I would call it out, I was aggressive or assertive or angry. And I was like, I'm just really trying to figure it out. And I remember one day I was driving to work and I stopped at this red light and I don't know what it was about the color red that day. Uh, But I looked at that light and I just burst out crying. It was a day after work where I had had it and I was got up to go back to work and it was raining and I was in my car and I was like, I don't want nothing in me wants to go back to this job. Mm. And so I got to work. I was the first one there, which was usually the case because I'm I was the type of person, first one there, last one to leave. You know, you work hard, shit will work out, and which is not always the case. And so I sat down in front of my computer and I'm not very religious, but I'm very spiritual. And I said a prayer and I was like, all right, if it's meant to be, I need a sign. Like, it's time for me to leave this place. I need a sign. And something in my head says, it's time. Just start writing your resignation, see what you come up with. So I wrote it. I wrote a four-page resignation letter. And I sent it in. And I was like, I'm leaving. The good thing was the job had given me a professional development budget. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to figure it out. And so I went and talked to another friend of mine who was in real estate. And he was like, have you heard of SCORE? And I was like, what's SCORE? which is a free business program for people who are entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs, but they have some classes you can pay to take. 
So I took my professional development and I started paying for classes for SCORE. And I got a mentor because I didn't know anything about how to start a business, right? And I remember just learning so much about needing to start a business. And the funny thing was, in this job, they had us do RGAs, which are roles, goals, and achievements. And it was like, where do you want to be in a year, two years, in three to five years? And I didn't even remember writing it, Jenna. I opened that RGA to read it one day. And at the top, it said, in five years, I'm the CEO of my own company. And I was like, when did I write that? But in that moment, I needed to see it. It got to the point where I got a boss who was also a woman who I felt like I had never been more mistreated by women of color, non-Black women than I have in Seattle, right? And I just remember every day it was a different cut. You know how they say you that thousand cut, which could be something small. It was like, I remember them talking to me about my performance evaluation. And it was like, there was words in there like aggressive, like she's too aggressive for her position. And I was a high performer, like no lie, average at least five stars on everything except respect and value others, which they said because of the way that I spoke to people, I was disrespecting people. And I was like, but if I was a man, would you have said that? Exactly. If you were a white you know? man, would they have said that? Right. And so I was like, and there was, I remember another woman on the call. My boss told me, a woman on the call, a black woman in DC stood up for me and said, y'all haven't said that about any white man on this call. And so it was just like, when I heard that, I was like, I think it's time to go. Wow. Through this whole transformation, through the resignation, through going through this mentorship, through writing the words, to deciding to leave this program, what were your fears that you were experiencing? Financial was the biggest fear. I was like, what if I fail, yeah. right? I'm yeah. a huge type A personality, not too big on ambiguity. I like to control the shit that's in front of me. I've had to learn to let that piece go to a certain extent because I don't think they ever leave you, but you learn to manage it. So I was definitely afraid because I didn't have any money saved up. I had a small 401k that was about $6,400. Mm -hmm. And I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to sacrifice. Like, I was afraid of being homeless. My family didn't have the money to support me. So I was like, I don't have anything to fall back on. I was also afraid because this is one of the most important parts of the story. I forgot to tell you. <laughs> the thing that hurt me the most, we was in a meeting. This was my thousand cut. And I had redeveloped our assessment process in order for students to get into our program to make it more inclusive. And so from that, we got more women. We got more students of color. We got people with disabilities. So I had started to create this tool in collaboration with our admissions department in order to make our process more inclusive and equitable. So it did. It helped our enrollment. But what happened is one day we were in an all-team meeting and they showed the numbers for our graduation rates again. And it triggered me because 70% of our people who left our program were Black men. And I remember this moment of consciousness that was like, you can get them in the door but what are you going to do in the culture to make it more inclusive? Right. Because now that they're here and I was like, how did I miss that? And I was like, here I am fighting to make this place more inclusive for staff and for students. And I'm not getting anywhere. And that was the day before I decided to write my resignation. Yeah, because I had a small meltdown when I saw that shit. I was like, I can't believe I did this. Doesn't sound like it was your fault, though. It's right. a systemic issue, right? That was my biggest fear because I was like, if I'm going to get in the DEI, how am I going to make sure that I never make that mistake again? Yeah, yeah. So it was about one, if I was going to do it, to be humble enough to make sure that I don't let down the people who I intend to serve, mm -hmm. um, but also financially, like, what am I going to do if I don't make it? And then there was this piece of me that was like, are you actually prepared as you need to be successful at this? Right. So it's imposter syndrome. Like, if I jump into this space. Am I ready? 
What was your community of people saying to you? Your closest community, were they encouraging? Were they optimistic? Were they pessimistic? Were they playing devil's advocate? What were they doing? It was all of that. It was mostly like, are you sure you want to leave this job? Like, we get why. We understand. But are you sure you want to leave this job? Like, are you going to leave security? Seattle's been sick to live. Like, it's things like that, you know? And then I had a small group. I would say about 10% of my circle that was like, go for it. The worst you can do is fail. Like, you always going to have a job. And that was who I listened to. I didn't listen to anybody but myself. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm being <laughs> a little bit than I need to be. I was like, no, you at the space where you've listened to people enough. Listen to you. Yeah. And I called my mentor and he was like, you got all the tools that you need to be successful. He was like, the world that you live in has created a space for you to be a goddamn unicorn. The biggest thing I'm hearing too is that you had and you have purpose. Yeah. And purpose came through a lot of pain, but it came, you know, which I think was more meaningful to me now because if I hadn't gone through that, it's like, would I have been here? Mm-hmm. You know, or would I have been in a nine to five? Not saying there's anything wrong with that, but unhappy. I, that's why every morning I have to wake up and say I'm grateful for the lessons, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of forgiveness has had to happen to be a successful in entrepreneurship and still forgiveness practice daily. I'm really glad that you're sharing all of this. There are so many people, a lot of my listeners who are in the midst of how do I embrace fear? And how do I follow my intuition? How do I lead with my gut? This is why I created this podcast, right? And why I created my coaching business, right? To help people, specifically millennials, actually, to embrace the fears, right? The external fears, internal fears, and to say, I'm going to follow my gut. I'm not going to listen to all these people. I'm going to do what I want to do, right? Especially if I'm purpose-driven, I'm going to do it and trust that the universe has my back and trust that everything will be okay. And you know, I think the other day, I love this conversation because I was thinking about fear and I have put this meme up that said fear is face everything and rise, right? And I remember on my social media, I posted, if you've been a founder who's grown up in poverty or has grown up and been discriminated against, what tools did you learn to make you successful? And I had all these people posting and writing like, here's what I've learned. And it was just like a reminder, you know, especially even through times like now when shit is really hard how you've gotten these survival tactics and these instincts because you've been put in positions where you've had to survive. Now, don't let them leave you when you need them the most. When did you decide to start? Did you start diversity first? Yes. Okay. I started diversity first. Okay. And can you share what it is and what the purpose is and what you do? Yes. So diversity is a consulting firm. We do professional services in diversity, equity, and inclusion. We do DEI assessments. We do training and we do strategy building for companies. We work with companies and it doesn't have to just be a company. We work with educational institutions from K through 12, higher education. Most of our clients tend to work in for-profit and tech. And we work with any size business from the startup to the enterprise company in that space. And our mission is to eliminate oppression and discrimination in every institution. I love it. The people that reach out to you, are they in HR? Are they in C-suite? Who reaches out to you? Both? Yeah, both. Depends on size of the company. Most of our target audience is usually people in human resources. Okay. And they reach out to you. And what are the things that they typically say to you? Cheryl, I need help with. Cheryl, we are struggling with. What do they say? (laughs) Oh, people, we say we get clients. I'm laughing because we tend to get clients in two sectors, intervention and prevention. Most of our clients come to us with intervention at the point where shit has kind of hit the fan and they know they need to do something different. 
And usually when they reach out to us, they say, hey, we've started working on a DEI initiative, which, you know, DEI should never be an initiative. It should be ingrained in your DNA. Right. Okay. But we know people are like, we just want to initiate something and get something done because we're struggling. And they don't necessarily always admit to us in the first call that they're struggling. They say, here's where some of our pain points are. And we'd like to talk to you about how you can support us. If you don't mind me asking, what are some of the typical examples that you hear? Retention, especially of visible diversities is the first. So men are gender identity and race diversity tend to be the things that people are struggling with. They're losing people or they can't recruit people. Um, So they'll call us and say that, or the person HR will let us know that someone has filed a complaint because they feel like one, women are treated inequitably in the workplace or racial minorities are being treated inequitably in the workplace and they start to have the data that shows it, right? And usually when they call us, most of the data is qualitative and not quantitative in nature. So they say, we got all these complaints or this is what we've heard in our staff meeting and we just need to know how to figure out what the root cause is and how to solve it. And most people will say, we need training. I'm like, no, wait, pause, pump the brakes before you get training and give me some data on what kind of training you think you need. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then do you go out there with clients and you observe and kind of see what's going on? We do all sorts of assessments. So we do interviews and focus groups and individually with clients, we will observe their meetings. We do a really in-depth third-party anonymous survey, which we send out. That's what Inclusology is, our assessment tool. And we break down data by every identity that they have in the workplace to look for trends. And so we usually do that both qualitatively and quantitatively to see what's happening. Oftentimes, do you find that there are more issues than what HR, what the C-suite first originally brought to you? (laughs) Yes. About percent of our engagements are like, wait a minute, why didn't you say anything about this? And sometimes to be fair, they just don't know, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of the people who call us are white people, often with privilege or people with any kind of privilege who have never experienced some of the discrimination that their employees experience, but they sometimes are the catalyst for it, right? And so we see, I mean, the biggest trend that we see, and I'll people say, I'll say because she's Black. It's not true. But the biggest trend that we see are that people who tend to have privilege live or work in a different type of world than people who don't. Right. So if you have racial privilege, you experience the workplace differently from somebody who doesn't. If you have ableism, able body privilege, you experience the workplace differently from somebody who doesn't because you don't have to think about what they have to think about. Right. And so, you know, if someone's LGBTQ, people just don't get that you said something offensive or you even created a policy that impacts this population differently. And it's like when we alert them that that's happening and we show them the data, people either do two things. They embrace us and tell us to come in and help them solve it, or they run from us because they're afraid of what might get leaked or if they're going to face a lawsuit. Not many clients will do that, but we have a few who say, thank you for the information. We'll take it from here. Okay. And most of those clients we tend to hear back from a year later or so. When they are ready to face the facts, right? Mm -hmm. When they're ready to change. I can see a lot of companies who are more traditional and more old school and not as diverse maybe having some of those issues, right? Where they think they're ready and they're not fully ready to change, right? Because that impact and what that means for their company is probably a lot. Yeah, we say they want change, but they don't want to change. Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I'm not gonna say have you because I did read this as your story in Michaela's book in Female Firebrands, but you have had experiences 
where companies will say, you know, can you please do this, but not this, right? What do you say back to them when they say that to you? That a lot of strategy has gone into that. Because before I used to tell people, I'm not your consultant. You need to go find somebody else. I'm not the person that's going to help you with that. And my mentor actually cashed my reality check. He said, you're dealing with a lot of ignorance. You've been an educator. You know how to meet people where they are and get your point across. Don't lose that authenticity. You know, don't jeopardize your authenticity, but don't lose it, right? You just have to figure out how to meet people where they are. And he said, you've always been good at it. Figure it out. Now, going from the space of, I'm not your consultant, there, one thing that we've done is a lot of prevention where we show data that says, here's actually what people are experiencing. Here's why we're going to customize our content to fit what your employees need. So we no longer actually go into companies without some sort of assessment being done. It. it could be a Got small it. professional development assessment. It could be a group interview or it can be a really big assessment. But it's like, we won't train you unless you've done that information already and you have it for us or you allow us to collect it. And we set that precedent from the gate. So people know even when they go on our website that that's our policy. That's good. And does that help your clients then? It does because now we can present data, but now I'm a big fan of when we present data, we present solutions. Like here's what everybody in your training can expect to leave with, right? And so when people see that, it's like, we're going to address it in a way that's practical and give you the strategies and the tools and not just lecture your employees to death about unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. Have you ever experienced a time where you were connecting with a client or a prospect and you were discriminated against? You were just- No, <laughs> yes. I also that, shouldn't have led with have you, by the way, but <laughs> that happens. Tell me about it. All time. <laughs> oh, I got so many stories, Jenna. I, the most recently, interesting enough, we had a client. She was put in a position where she was having imposter syndrome and she got to the point where she was racially profiled me in our emails. So she went back and would tell her boss that my emails were harassing her. And so, you know. <laughs> And when you think about linguistic profiling, it's like, would you have said that about a white consultant? And what my emails were, to be fair, were very explanatory of, here's why you need to think about this. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, she didn't want to hear anything I had to say. Instead, it was always pushing it back, pushing it back. And it was my other consultant who is a specialist in racial equity, subject matter expert. I show her the emails and she was like, this is a lot of anti-Blackness happening from this person who is of Asian descent. And she was like, and I think that maybe it either might be time for you to step away or something needs to change. And that's just one of many stories. I had one and I wrote about it in Female Firebrands where a person says something, a VP says something extremely racist, sizist, sexist to me in the middle of a presentation. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, wow. And I've gotten to the point now where I'm like, there's no way I'm ever going to let that slide. And I'd rather lose an account than be that person who walked away from that teachable moment. I actually do love that story. Would you mind sharing that story with the audience of what happened and the comment that the person made to you? Sure. So it was a discovery meeting. Actually, where We were going to them to present about how we run assessments and here's what it is that we do. And so I broke down our assessment tool because at the time I was presenting about Inclusology, tool that I'm building. And I'm breaking it down piece by piece like we do with every company or potential client. And I was in a room, there were nine of us. I was the only woman of color, there was one other woman and eight white men, seven white men, because there are nine of us. Yes. And so after the presentation was over, the VP stands up and I think he's the VP of strategy. He was getting ready to leave. And he said, that was a really great presentation. You're smarter than you look. And he chuckled. And I was like, everybody sit the fuck down. I was like, hold up. 
like, you know, the quick moment, five seconds, I was like, you could say nothing and walk away and get the account or you could make this teachable moment for his ass. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to make a teachable moment because I'm not going to leave this building with that on my heart. And so, you know, I said to him, I was like, here's why I didn't even ask him, what do you mean by that? Because I didn't give a damn because I knew that that was insulting. I said, here's why you should never say that to anyone. And I told him, I said, you look like a racist, a sexist, a sizist, or an ableist. Even if you didn't mean it, that's how the recipient of that message takes it. I said, there's no way to say that nicely to anyone. So I'm just going to recommend moving forward, you never, ever say that to anybody again or think that about anybody again. And he turned bright red and he said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. You know, I appreciate the feedback. Thank you. And he walked away from us. He walked out the meeting and everybody walked out the meeting except the older white woman who was in the meeting. And she walked up to me because when he said it, I looked at her and she put her head down. And I was like, okay, I'm not the only person you've said this to. And so when he walked out, she walked up to me after everybody left. She said, you're not the first person he said that to, but you're the first person to give him feedback. She said, I've been here seven years and nobody has ever said anything to him. And I looked at her. I said, you don't have to answer this now. Why didn't you say anything? Right. And she looked at me. I said, and depending on your answer, you should think about, is this a place where you really want to work? And she looked at me. She said, I appreciate that. And she walked out. And I was sitting there. I was like, there was eight other people in the room. Well, seven, if you know Nicole M. Nobody said anything. You know, and I was like, and all y'all are executives. There's a lot to learn about what it means to be an ally. You know, because imagine that it happened to somebody who's not as vocal as I am, which it has. Right. Mm-hmm. Obviously. Mm-hmm. In my working experience, I feel that most people do not speak out and do not Mm -hmm. speak up because they are so afraid of the repercussions. And then they're also so afraid that that person will turn around and say something even ruder to them or even more harsh to them. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, that's why I asked her, is that a place where you really want to work? Because if you don't feel safe, I don't care how intelligent or great at your job you are. If you don't feel safe in the workplace, you don't show up fully. We go back and forth about what does it even mean to show up fully and do you need someone's whole self in the workplace? No, you yep. don't. But it applies to their performance in their job and they have that capability. You want them to show up with every ability that they have to be great at that job. And if you can't be, then that's probably not a place where you want to work or there's some change that needs to happen. It took time for me to find my voice, mm. right? Because it's scary. I'm one yep. of those who's like, you know, if something is said to me at first, I get go in shock. Like, did he or she really just say that to me in mm-hmm. front of everybody? Wait, is that racist? Am I overreacting? Is that sexist? Right. I have to like think about this. And so for a while, it took a long time for me to say something. But over time, I got to a point where I just said, like, no, I need to speak up and say something. I told Michaela this. I said I was at an interview a few months ago. And I was meeting with a whole team of people and I met the CEO and, you know, really nice guy, shook his hand. He shook my hand. And one of the first things he said to me after, how are you? How is your flight? That type of thing. Cause I flew out there. They flew me out there. He said, how did you get that tan? <laughs> oh my goodness. In front of everybody. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> yeah. And I just took a breath. You know, I said to myself quickly, I can either be the nice woman or I can Mm -hmm. speak up for myself and put him in his place the most professional way I can. And I decided to take option two. And I looked at him and I said, well, I got my tan from my parents. Mm. Just like that. And he got bright red and everybody just put their head down. Yep. 
And then he changed his subject and everything was fine. But I felt better saying that. I answered the question truthfully. Right. (laughs) But I I mean, I understand. I probably did make him feel a little shameful. I hope that I did. But there is no reason for a CEO or anyone in senior leadership or anyone to be asking those types of questions, especially on an interview. Right. And it is his ignorance. People are like, we should call it that. No, it is that. Right. It's like it's a polarity to intelligence, to ignorance. And you can get up it. You just have to be willing. Right. And sometimes willing takes for people to cast your reality check to let you know that that you shouldn't think that or say that to someone. Right. What is your advice to people who feel that they are discriminated in the workplace and they don't know what to do? What do you advise to them? My thing is find a way to show up. And here's what I mean by that. So this is my phrase. It's like, find a way to show up because not everybody's vocal, right? Culturally, some people don't speak out. Find a way to show up. So whether that is creating a community like an employee resource group or a business resource group where you have a shared space and other people behind you, don't hesitate to look for another job. I always tell people that, like, if you really can't fix the workplace, you look for another job. Even find outlets. I find outlets outside of work that are communities of support whether it's a business professional mentoring group, family and friends who understand. Because let me be clear, your family and friends love you, okay? Most of them should, at least. And But they're not always the people that are helpful when you're in a difficult situation. And so you want to find people who have shared experiences like you and shared identities like you in order to build that community of support. Because trust me, your network equals your net worth. And the more people that you know, the more opportunities you open up for yourself. Yep. So it's also up to workplaces to create spaces for people to show up and not just have to speak up, right? So you have some sort of grievance policy or you, I tell people, document, document, document that shit, even if it's the slightest thing. Companies need to create policies where people can report it, right? Because if you report it and it happens to you, it's happening to somebody else, right? So you need to make sure that you have those policies in place to protect people if and when those things happen. And you need to have spaces in place to educate people because not everybody's intent is malicious, right? But they don't know. And so you have to give people a chance even. And there has to be something that's zero tolerance, though. I'm a fan of if somebody does something to an extreme that really harms someone, there needs to be a zero tolerance policy, right? Especially like with things like sexual harassment, et cetera. But racism, ableism, all those things need a zero tolerance policy. Do you think that companies are actively practicing a zero policy procedure? No, it's not as inclusive as it should be. So many of them have things that are fireable offenses, but many of those things are not as inclusive as they should be. Like companies don't think about what happens if you do something to someone who is disabled, that's highly offensive. Or if you do something that is not in the space even of sexism, because a lot of harassment and zero tolerance policies are around workplace harassment, especially sexism, but not racism, Mm -hmm. not ableism you know, not linguistic profiling. And they need more of that. People need to understand that what your cultural values are and what is acceptable or unacceptable, right? Because to be fair, rules and policies help to minimize chaos. And some of us live in more chaotic spaces than others, even though we work in the same places, depending on our identities. When your clients are completed with your program, are they ever complete or is it ongoing? About 70% of our clients stick with us. Um, But we do have They work with other people and they just bring us in for certain parts of an engagement. Okay. And with Inclusology, your tool for assessment, are you able to show your clients the growth that they've had? We do actually. That's part of our beta process now. We have some clients who have been with us for three years. 
And so for every assessment that we run, we do a comparative analysis for every question to show them how they're performing over time. And we do, we've seen improvements. We've seen retention of marginalized populations increase by almost 75%. We've seen issues of bias reporting and discrimination reports in the workplace decrease by 13% just annually after working with us for up to a year. That's incredible. We just started tracking that data in 2019 to see those results from people who have been with us since 2017. That's so great. Remind me again, when did you start Diversity? August of 2016, and then Inclusology came in 2018. Okay. So it's been four years, right? Ish. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're already a yep. CEO. Remember you said yeah. five-year plan, you said a CEO. <laughs> that happened after like the first month. <laughs> yes. Yes. You are making a huge difference and you're nationwide, right? Yep. Nationwide, nationwide. all industries, all company sizes. You are obviously living your purpose. You're living your dream. seems like you're leading with your gut. You're making a huge difference. What is next for you? I'm in the midst of raising for Inclusology. I'm in the midst of raising a seed round. And so I'm hoping to build out this. I'm not hoping I'm building out this wonderful tool. Okay. And the goal is to really see some of the results that we've created in workplaces nationwide, right? Like I tell myself, you know, before I leave this earth, which was a hard reality for me to have to admit until my mother passed, I was like, okay, we all got a time clock, right? And I was like, before, you know, that happens, I want to make sure that I create something that that is a legacy of inclusion and equity. Would this be more of like an easier automated tool for businesses and HR professionals to use in their organizations? I'm I'm using artificial intelligence to create real-time solutions when problems arise, right? And part of it is like, hey, like you're going to put DEI consultants out of business. I'm like, not necessarily. It could improve business if we do it well. But I definitely want people to have things at their fingertips to solve problems in the moment. And part of the reason Inclusology came up is because, you know, we would run assessments in companies, for example, it would take us a year to build in all those solutions and to get people up to speed. But within that year, the people who are suffering were still suffering when they called us. You know, slowly but surely it started to progress. And I was like, this is taking too much damn time. Mm-hmm. How am I going to make it quicker, more accessible and efficient? And so next is to build out Inclusology into an enterprise company. I'm going to continue. I really, really love social impact work. And so, you know, recidivism is a passion of mine. Any kind of ism, I'm like, I want to help solve that. But I love <laughs> I hope to, you know, go back home to Omaha. I don't want to live there, but I hope to open up a space to employ more people and do some work in my own city to build it up. That's really been on my heart. I love that you're bringing it full circle. Yeah. That's incredible. We have been talking for a good amount of time now. I've really enjoyed this conversation. What have we not talked about that you want to share? I've also really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. And thank you for sharing your experiences as well. I talked a little bit about forgiveness. And as a Black woman, I believe in transgenerational trauma. And just to anybody who has trauma, I believe that part of my success has happened because of my spirituality, right? So I'm not saying you have to be religious. I'm not saying you have to be spiritual, but there has to be some sort of process, therapy, et cetera, which I've also gone through and still go through in order to really help me deal with some of the shit that happens to me daily, but has led to me being this person because it's not easy. And I think we're in a time in our country where that is more at the forefront than anything about discrimination and the things that we face and how prevalent and powerful it is. And so I'm big on self-care. And so I want people to take care of yourself. You know, it's cliche to say, put your oxygen mask on first, but please, please, please go get the help that you need or take the time that you need 
to find wellness. And I'm not a believer in balance being 50-50. For me, sometimes balance is 30-70, 60-40, 20-80. It depends on how I'm feeling. And so, you know, find balance in a way that works for you that doesn't always cause you to have to sacrifice yourself. So take the time because that shit really matters. That's really good advice. I had a fantastic guest on a few weeks ago. Her name is Victoria Albina. She actually talks a lot about trauma. She calls it big T trauma and little T trauma. And she Mm. says big T trauma is like massive events that you've experienced, like a massive death, a car accident, something insane that happened to you. And then little T trauma is what you experience every single day. So, you know, she talked about it in just being a woman. So for her, it was, you know, being catcalled every single day on the Mm -hmm. corner. It was being looked at a certain way by an older man, being stared at, being told a phrase or something that someone says to her that's discriminatory or like passive aggressive, right? And so her thought process and her theory, and she's totally right, is that, you know, the big traumas obviously can affect who you are, but these little traumas, these daily traumas that you experience are actually a big deal. And it's really important that you heal those little traumas. Yes, I agree. I mean, I meditate daily. I work out. I read. I talk to people when I need to. It's like, you know, I've never found one quick fix for it. But definitely, definitely entrepreneurship is no joke. I mean, it is not for the faint of heart. And so that's why I say to people, and and it is for the faint of heart. Let me not be that person that doesn't say that. That's bullshit. But just make sure that as you go on this journey, that you also take care of yourself because entrepreneurship is, is intense. What does it mean to you to lead with your gut? That's a great question. It took a long time for me to truly trust me. And I think that entrepreneurship has helped me understand my intuition and trusting it when it shows up. Because there's been times where I've doubted it and I've suffered from it. And so, you know, just that feeling of listening to yourself and understanding that this is something is not right here, personally and professionally, right? And I think for me, like I'm big on chakras. Yeah. When I think about like my sacral chakra and where my emotions sit, to have that open and to listen to it and be aware of it and then to follow it, right? Because the best leaders know how to follow other people. And so I think that, you know, following my gut and my instincts helps me to do that better. I love that. Any last pieces of advice you want to share with the audience? Yeah, just one last thing. I said it before, but I'll say it again. Don't take for granted the struggles that you've had in your life because I think that our greatest lessons lead to our greatest successes. So don't feel the shame and the guilt when you make a mistake. Instead, remember a mistake is only a mistake if you don't find a way to correct it. Love that. Cheryl, how can people find you? I'm everywhere. On social media, (laughs) Facebook, I prefer LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. I'm Dr. CI Official. On LinkedIn, you'll find me at Cheryl Ingram PhD. I have a blog under Cheryl Ingram PhD on Medium. Lots and lots of articles about some of these experiences. Tweet me, Dr. C.I. Official or Instagram, same thing. And it's the letter C, letter I, official. Okay. Listeners, I will have those quick links in the show notes for you to click on so you can just go ahead and follow her. Cheryl, you are so funny, by the way, on social media. Some of the things that you say on Instagram and Twitter, I'm just like, you absolutely nailed it. So I encourage you to follow Cheryl if you, one, want to learn and two, want to laugh a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Learn to laugh. I love it. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate the time you took out of your day to chat with me. And I'm very grateful for you and for what you're doing. The same. Thank you for the opportunity and for creating a space for people to have their voices. I love it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, Jenna. We'll talk soon. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Leading With Your Gut. Music by Shaw Wild. You can find Shaw's music on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, please email me at leadingwithyourgut at gmail.com. Thank you and happy listening.